for a parent to answer, a young parent of young children especially, is how to deal with questions. Because questions come constantly. You know, uh, why, how? Uh, we, whoa. That, okay, that, yeah, yeah, that's voice of God effect for a minute there, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but we have questions constantly, and we, and we know as, as parents that you got to find a balance there. Because if you answered every question that a child or a grandchild put to battery's gone bad, all you'd ever do would be to answer questions all day long. On the other hand, you know that if you never answered questions, then they wouldn't learn and they'd get those questions answered from someone who wasn't giving them such a good answer. So it's a balance. And I really believe that uh, the Lord God above, that he has a special sympathy for parents who have heard, are we there yet, for the 987th time, because God himself as a father hears questions from his children constantly. In our, our um, message today, in our passage, we hear the question, why, O Lord? And that question is repeated so many times, why, O Lord, or how, O Lord, or how long, O Lord, constantly through the scriptures, especially if you look at the, at the Old Testament and the book of Psalms where these honest prayers, unvarnished prayers, where they are just simply pouring out their hearts. Many times they're praising God and thanking him and saying, yes, Lord, and you're awesome. And other times they're saying, why, God? How, God? How long, God? Questions. <clears throat> well, just like a wise parent, God knows that uh, sometimes he can answer that question for us. Sometimes we don't need that answer, and sometimes we're not ready for that answer. Many times we know this with our children. They're asking a legitimate question, but we know they're simply not ready where they are in life to hear that answer. Well, oftentimes when we come to the scriptures, uh, we, we get questions. And uh, preachers have a difficult uh, time sometimes deciding how to address those. Because we know that we could come up here every week and dig deep into the minute questions and we could put on a, a, a lecture that would rival any seminary classroom lecture, but, but that's not what we need most of the time. We, we simply need something to encourage us and build our faith and help us move forward. But yet we can't ignore the hard questions either. And so today as we're looking at this passage from Isaiah 6, I want to handle it a little bit differently than I often have in the past. Because this is that famous passage, you know, where he has this, Isaiah the prophet has this vision of the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. And, and he goes, he's there, and we hear all about the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple with glory. And, and we hear about um, him being, having this hot coal touched to his lips in the vision and because he has unclean lips and he acknowledges his sin. And, and God says, who will I send and who will go for us? And, and, and we usually end it right there at verse 8 where he says, here am I, Lord, send me. And there are wonderful lessons there um, that I usually focus on. And a lot of times 
pastors will, on this passage, we'll talk about the holiness of God and how amazing it is. We talk about the sinfulness of man, just like he understood these unclean lips. And and we talk about being willing to go and, and to serve and having that willingness to go on God's mission just like uh, Isaiah had. And those are all wonderful and true points. But um, they're kind of the easier part. They're kind of the, the easier part, as hard as some of it is, is kind of easier than, than some of the rest of the passage. And so this morning, we're going to be looking, we're going to be starting at verse 8, where we usually kind of finish in this. And we're going to go from verse 8 to verse 13, and we're going to address some tough questions about being a believer. Tough questions we have uh, in our faith as we approach some of these difficult Old Testament uh, passages. And so what we'll do is we're going to read a couple of verses. We're going to read just a little verse at a time, couples, one section, another, instead of going all at a time. And uh, we're going to begin with verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused and make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. When I read this passage, the immediate question that comes to my mind, the tough question is, why would God discourage repentance? Why would God call him to a message that is going to make their hearts calloused and their ears dull and their eyes closed? It's hard for us to understand this because it doesn't seem to match up with what we know of God. Now, an easy, uh, easy, quick response might be, say, well, this is one of those funny Old Testament passages, and, you know, so we, we just kind of leave it there. We don't understand it, but we can't do that with this passage because it's actually quoted six times in the New Testament. And it's interesting, it's in those First six books, it's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. So seven times in the Bible, we get this same message uh, of this way of preaching that just sounds kind of strange, kind of weird. So is this the God we know? Is this his heart? Does he desire people to be unbelieving and unrepentant? Well, of course not. 2 Peter 3.9 is probably the clearest verse, although there's hundreds or even thousands of other verses that would tell us the will of God is for people to come to belief, to come to repentance, to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In fact, that verse, uh, it's it's a wonderful verse because it's actually Peter explaining a question that the early uh New Testament Christians had because he wrote this verse and it had kind of been a while since Jesus had 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 died and ascended and the church was going on for a few years and everybody was talking about Jesus coming back and after a while some folks said Lord's kind of slow 
I mean, I've been waiting for this whole Jesus coming back thing. Is it really ever going to happen? And Peter says, the Lord is not slow as some people uh, judge slowness, but rather he is patient and he wants everyone to come and be saved. So if you ever say, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Peter already provided an answer for that because he loves people. He wants to see repentance. He wants people to come to him. And he is delaying his coming until the appropriate time as he gives us more and more time to listen to the message, to repent and turn to God. So what's God actually doing here in this verse? Well, first of all, the shocking language will reach a few people whose consciences are not completely gone. You and I know we've all done this before. We've argued with someone. We've told them something's wrong. We, we've told them don't do that. It's a bad idea. And finally, we get to a point when they, they come back to throw it in our face again. We were like, go ahead. You know, <laughs> I, I'm done. go ahead. Do it. Sure. If that's what makes you happy. Do we really want them to go ahead and do it? Absolutely not. But we've come to that point where we know that all the patient kind understandings we can give are not they've already hardened their heart to that and they're not going to do any more good and finally we say I'm going to display a different answer a different attitude in hopes that it shocks them out of what are the, what they are thinking in hopes that they'll say whoa whoa man you know that is uh maybe I should pay attention here and the Bible does talk about there will be a remnant. There will be some. There were some. This, this talking about there, them being the eyes dull and all that wasn't absolute. There would still be a few whose consciences were not completely seared, whose hearts were not completely hardened, that they would listen. They would hear this wake-up call and be shocked into finally hearing and understanding the truth. But the reality is we're in Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5, God has been speaking to the people of Israel over and over and over. In fact, he had done so, done so. He had spoken through many other prophets before Isaiah. And so he had preached repentance. He had preached do what's right. He had preached the right way so many times. And now this was the point where, where there was kind of a, had to be a change of strategy. The judgment was already coming. Are these people who are hard-hearted, are they, is it, you know, these people, they're at that place where they've already decided not to believe. They're already locked in to their unbelief. Is God saying that he deliberately blinds people and condemns them? Not at all. Listen to this, uh, Warren Wearsby said this, and, and I love this. It says, what he is saying is that the word of God has a hardening and blinding effect on sinners who will not listen and yield. I love this part. The sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. The sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. The message of truth, the message of God towards repentance can have a dual effect. For those who are still listening, for those who have any shred of their conscience, if they have any shred of a tender heart, they can hear that message and they will come back. But on the other hand, those who have already locked into their unbelief, those who have, have rejected God and his ways, 
they are storing up for themselves more and more evidence as they stand before God on the day of judgment that they heard the message, that they should have believed, that they should have listened, but yet they did not. Let's move on to verses 11 and 12. Here we have a very understandable question from the prophet Isaiah. He's like, okay, this is an interesting message. How long, O Lord? For then I said, how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, and until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. You know, Isaiah's uh, predicament here often reminds me of the thing that I've been heard especially applying to the military, never volunteer. Do you wonder if after Isaiah has said, here am I, Lord, send me, and then Isaiah, then he hears, okay, Isaiah, you've got a message that's going to make people's hearts hard and, and they're going to be unbelieving. Oh, that's pretty rough. Oh, how long, God? And, you know, maybe he's hoping this, this season, this month, this year, and God says, you're going to keep preaching it until all the judgment that I have foretold that others have foretold till it comes to pass and that the Israelite nation is removed completely they're exiled they're living far away and their homeland is in ruins oh okay (laughs) that probably was a tough one and yet yet Isaiah we shall see as we read the rest of the book he follows that he is obedient to that command he preaches a message and a remnant a small number a few will repent but many will not and God's judgment does come just as God foretold and so we often look at this situation and others and we ask ourselves a question we look and we say I I don't think I could do that I can I don't know if I could handle that And so we ask ourselves a question. We say, should I be ashamed for not measuring up to those prophets? Should I look down on myself? Should should I live in shame and reproach because I see people, I see heroes of the faith doing things that I know I could never, ever do? um, We often have a dual response to the heroes of faith in Scripture. We are both encouraged by them and uplifted by the mighty things they did, and then we're often discouraged because we say, I could never do that. We're with David as he goes out on that field with Goliath. We're cheering him on. We love that story. But we also think, I don't know. I put away my slingshot in third grade. I'm not sure if I could go out on that field and face that giant, and we get discouraged. How do we stop this discouragement by comparison? Well, first of all, we should know comparison's never a good game to play. Comparison usually makes us either uh, in shame and despair or false pride. But we stop it by first focusing on God's faithfulness rather than our weakness. God rather than ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a very commonly known verse, a well-known verse, but it is often misapplied. It is often mangled into meaning something it doesn't. 
It says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with your testing, he will also provide a way out that you may be able to endure it. The common paraphrase that we talk is, God won't give you anything you can't handle. Have you heard that before? That is how we commonly paraphrase that verse. That's how it's communicated among Christians. But in fact, the the focus is not about you're tough enough to handle anything God gave you. The focus is on God and his faithfulness. That is the first three words. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tested beyond your strength, but with your testing, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. So the focus is not about how you're Mr. Tough Christian or Miss Tough Christian and you can handle everything, but rather on the faithfulness of God and that he's going to be there with you and he's going to provide you an exit strategy. He's going to provide you his grace and his faithfulness so that you can make it through in the moment. He doesn't promise you that he's going to give you a plan in advance and tell you how it all works out because that's what we want, right? We, We see this danger looming. We see this huge situation, and we stress out and figure it out trying to think like we're God somehow, that we're going to have a plan for all of it, and we're stressed because we're not God, and we can't come up with that explanation. But God hasn't promised us an explanation, and he hasn't promised us to be superheroes of the faith. He's promised that he's faithful And that he's going to help us face what he has for us to face. He's going to find a way out for us when we need that way out. Secondly, though, we need to remember that the heroes of the faith, especially the prophets, uh, they were called to do things that you and I will never be called to do. Are they still great examples for us? Absolutely. But I'm going to tell you, uh, you know, there were times where I certainly felt led to, uh, to take Caleb to his room, send him there ahead of time, go fetch a belt. But I never was called, I don't know if he might argue whether I was really called by God to do that or not. But I can tell you for sure, I was not called by God to pull an Abraham, to take him up on a mountain and strap him down and raise that knife. We look at that as a story of the faith of how Abraham... Uh, took Isaac up on that hill, and God, just like the verse said, God provided, God is faithful, God gave that sacrifice, that lamb. But nowhere else in Scripture was there any other person who was called to go up on that mountain, and we know that God's not going to call us to do that. But now we can take uh, encouragement, uh, we, we can take some, some lessons, because what I do know, and every single parent knows this, is that you will be called to your greatest moment of trust, your greatest trials of faith will be concerning your children. Because there'll be times in life when things are bad and things are tough and you say, you know, this is bad, but I'm okay, but I'm so scared for my kids. And you'll say, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm worried because this has happened to my kids or this is happening or this is about to happen. And, and, And there we have that great test of faith. And so we learn from the example of Abraham and his faith. But yet we know we are not called to be on that mountain with a knife. Similarly, Hosea. Remember old Hosea? Uh, in fact, right, it's interesting. This, this Bible story 
It's kind of becoming a little more well-known right now. Francine Rivers wrote a book called Redeeming Love that was kind of a modern-day version of it, and, and now that's a movie that's out. Um, but if you're not up on Hosea, and I'll forgive you if you're not, it's kind of an obscure book back in the Old Testament, but God told him, Hosea, go and marry, I think the King James says, a wife of harlotry, okay? Uh, go and marry yourself a wife of harlotry, all right? In other words, God told him, commanded him that uh, he was going to marry this woman and that she was going to be unfaithful to him and she was going to run off and yet he would keep taking her back and, and, and that, there's this great, as that title says, a redeeming love. And the idea in that book was that just as God called the prophets to do many strange things in the Old Testament because they were to be a sign and a symbol to the people of their day, this was a sign of God's great love for the people of Israel, that they would be unfaithful, that they would stray away from him time and time again, and yet God would not completely reject them. God would bring them back, and he would love them, and he would restore them, even through their unfaithfulness. And that is the amazing message that we are supposed to remember about our God and his love for us. However, the message of Hosea, I have seen in some Christian circles, it being twisted and turned into something that hurts people who are already hurting even further. I've heard people say to those who have spouses who are unfaithful and abusive and all sorts of things, well, remember Hosea. He kept taking back that wife, and, you know, that was, that's an example, and we should be like that and just deal with that just like Hosea did. Absolutely not. God's message was about him and his love for people. If God did not, uh, if God expected that type of behavior out of everyone, he would have told everyone. The whole point of Hosea's behavior is that it was so shocking and so unlike what God expected from ordinary people. And it reminded us of how great and forgiving God is. And if you have a question about that, what the good Jews of, uh, of the day might have thought, just think about, um, think about old Joseph. You know, when he heard that news about Mary being pregnant, he, he didn't say, oh, much like Hosea, I am being called to marry a wife of harlotry. So, you know, I, I'm so glad to hear that she's pregnant some other way than me, and, and I'm going to accept this call and this mission. No, the Bible says he went to put her away quietly. And we've said before that, that in that day, they weren't yet married, but they were betrothed. Something stronger in that day than our current day idea of engagement is so strong of a contract or of an agreement that you basically had to divorce someone just like you would if the actual marriage had already taken place. And the Bible tells us that he's, he was determined, hey, I'm not going to run her down. I'm not going to smear her name. I'm going to do this quietly. But... <laughs> He didn't say, oh, I'm going to be just like Hosea, and I'm going to marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful to me. No, no. So we have to understand that these examples of the faith, 
that they're awesome. They teach us principles about God and his work and how God worked and, and through certain difficult situations. But we don't need to take them and directly rip them and say, well, if I face that same example as Hosea, then I should do like him. Oh, if, if you know, that prophet that God told to go naked for a while, he's in there. Look it up, okay? We don't have to follow that and say, well, that's part of being a good Christian. There are many things God called people to do that he never is going to, he's never going to call you to do. But we can learn from them just like we learned from Abraham and Isaac on that mountain. Then finally, let's go through, look at verse 13. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will, will be the stump in the land. The question we have here is, when my whole world seems to be destroyed, can I still have hope? If I look around and my life seems to be a wasteland, I've messed it up, somebody else messed it up, a combination messed it up, is there still hope for me? Is there still something good ahead for me? And here in this situation, even when it was the people themselves that had messed it up, God says, yes, there's still hope. And he talks about these stumps. And I don't know, I'm not enough, I'm not a forester, I have no, no knowledge, but I do know that uh, some trees grow back pretty good when there's a stump. I know that we had some, um, oh, what are those big flowering things that we had out front of the office that we cut down? Crepe myrtles, crepe myrtles. Man, we tried to get rid of them. They were leaving a mess everywhere. We tried to get rid of them. We cut them down. Uh, I think Buddy put, like, drilled a hole in the middle of them, put some poison in there. The shoots kept coming back. I mean, I think there's probably still some under there. We kept having to cut down and recut. And because even though we chopped it down, it was just a stump. There was still life there. It was just life that we couldn't see. It was life that was not apparent because it was under the surface. There was still a strong root system. There was still life there. And so often we look at the devastation in our life and we think it's all gone. There's nothing left. There's no hope. There's nothing going to be good come out of this. And God said, look, even though Israel's a wasteland right now, even though I'm about to allow these pagan foreign armies to come in, to clean up, to exile almost everybody, take them away, and the whole world is going to look like it's gone. It's going to look like there's no more hope left for Israel. Yet, there's a stump. There's a stump. And that stump is going to have some shoots come up. And there's going to be a new tree come forth. There's going to be something. And it's interesting that the Bible always uh, or often, when talking about stumps in the Old Testament, talks about that shoot coming forth is coming from Jesse. That is the Messiah, Jesse, the father of David. And eventually the Messiah, Jesus, would come from that same line. And Israel would be saved. Israel would fulfill its mission to spread the gospel to the world through Jesus Christ. And those who are living in the exile couldn't see that. That's why Jeremiah in chapter 29 had to tell them, hey, God still has plans for you. 
plans to give you a hope and a future, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Because they couldn't see being exiled so far away in a foreign place, a foreign land, how God still had good things for them, but he did. And so even when the trees cut down and when you, even when your life is full of stumps, God says have hope even when you can't see it because there is life and there is hope that is waiting to redeem you. Understanding God's word is not always easy. I love that Peter even says that. He talks about Paul's letters. Have you ever come across that, that verse where he talks about Paul's letters and he says, they're sometimes hard to understand. And sometimes people twist them up and mess them up. We're all going to have questions and, and concerns and things that are bigger than us at times in our Christian faith. And yet, whether or not we can come up with the answers for those, some of these answers we may wait until eternity. But we can trust in the God who is faithful, whether we see his hand or not, that he is still working, drawing people to himself and building and loving his people. Let's pray today. God, we, um, we are in awe of you and your grace for us. Lord, your mercy is amazing. You did what Abraham did not completely go through with. And that is you did allow your son to be the sacrifice. God, you did allow him to come to this earth and to lay down his life and to bear the penalty from every sin of all times upon himself. And so, God, you are amazing in your love and your mercy and your grace for us. God, help us to trust you and believe in you even when we can't see the way forward. Lord, even when we can't see your hand, help us to trust your heart. Father, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.